Welcome to the Calvary Chapel South Bay Sermon Podcast. We are a large, multi-ethnic, multi-generational church in Los Angeles, California, and we'd love to have you visit us for a service if you're in the L.A. area. Visit ccsouthbay.org to learn more about us and to find out service times. If you have any questions, shoot us an email at hello at ccsouthbay.org. Enjoy today's sermon, and we hope to see you at church soon. Tonight we're going to finish up chapter one, the second half of our study entitled Lessons in Leadership. You know, one of the interesting things about the body of Christ is that we are called actually to be followers. That's actually what a disciple is, right? We're followers of Christ. We're under tutelage of someone else. That's what a disciple technically is. That means that we study under someone else's tutelage or care or apprenticeship. But at the same time, we're also leaders. And there are different levels of leadership within the body of Christ. But all of us have been called to lead. You may lead only in your home, as I shared with you last time. You may lead maybe one or two other people. You're going to get an opportunity to be a leader. You may lead on a mission trip. You may lead at work. You, you may have a home Bible study. You may be a homeschooling mom. You might be a teacher. You're going to have all kinds of opportunity in the body of Christ to actually use the gift that God's given you to lead others. You use that in evangelism. You use that in sharing the gospel. And so lest we dismiss the role of leadership and make it simply for people like myself who you know, happen to have the vocation of being a pastor, a shepherd, someone who teaches the word, broaden your mind a little bit and open your hearts to either your role as a leader or to your role in supporting leadership, very specifically leadership within the body of Christ. Most of you know a little bit of my testimony. I uh, grew up in a fairly crazy home, and because of that, I left home very early. I left when I was little over 17 years old, not been back since. I've been on my own ever since. And so I spent uh, about 14 years in the business world before ministry. So I kind of have a picture of leadership in both the world and leadership in the church. I have a leadership in multi-million dollar corporations, and I have a sense of leadership in the church, both in small churches and big churches. So I have a very broad leadership experience in that way. Let me tell you something. It is harder to lead a group of believers, if there are more than two of them, than it is to lead a multi-million dollar corporation. Why? Because when you're doing it for money, there's motivation. You, you can be punished. You can lose something. Something can be taken away. But when you lead in the church, it must be voluntary. There has to be a sense that I'm doing this because Jesus wants me to be engaged in the work that he's doing in this world. I have to take my position because thus says the Lord. Because God has commanded you and put you into that place. And you are either in that role, maybe as the leader, or maybe as someone who's following. But leadership in the church is difficult. And so tonight, 
we get the second part of our lessons in leadership. We'll pick up in verse 10, and we'll finish the chapter. Would you join me, and let's pray, and we'll take this rest of this passage on. Father, thank you. Lord, thank you for the lessons that have been passed on to my life throughout decades of ministry experience, Lord, both in the big things and in the little things. And we pray that tonight you would speak to us as your church. Show us your principles of leadership. Help us to understand what it means to come alongside and support leaders and also to be those leaders ourselves. And so, God, we give you tonight and pray that you'd speak to us through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Verse 10 begins this way, And then Joshua commanded the officers of the people, saying, Pass through the camp, and command the people, saying, Now I want you to notice something. Two times in that first verse, verse 10, notice he doesn't say, Give them suggestions. Uh, Start a committee. Uh, Take a poll. Have them write down their ideas and drop them in a suggestion box. There comes a time in leadership in the church when the Lord has spoken, you simply need to do it. And by that I mean we who are following and we who are leading. It becomes non-negotiable once we have heard in our hearts, thus says the Lord. Once God has spoken, it's not the time to take a poll. It's time to get busy. One of the reasons that specifically churches who are governed by elder boards sometimes get stuck is because they can't ever get to the place of thus says the Lord. They end up stuck in the place, well, I think, or I feel, or my experience says. In the church, we are God's people governed by God. And ultimately, you have to just simply get to it. The time for discussion is over. And I'm going to elaborate on these principles as we move forward. Saying, prepare the provisions for yourselves. For within three days, you will cross over this Jordan. Notice it doesn't say, you might, you can, you should. It says, you will. And the intent there in the original language is not only is it associated with the command, but if the Lord has said it, we should do it. You will. Not only will God enable you to, but you have to take the initiative to step out in faith. So we're going to see the blending in of our faith in action in this passage. Faith without works, James said, is what, church? It's dead, isn't it? You can say all day long, well, I trust the Lord. I believe in the Lord. I have faith in the Lord. I'm firmly convinced that God is always right. But if you never step out in faith, if your feet never hit the road, if you don't reach the River Jordan, if you're not willing to get your feet wet, If you are unwilling to do anything with your faith, faith without works is dead. And so you have to be careful because a lot of people say they have faith. James said, you say you have faith, I will show you my faith by my works, right? So this is a place that we always get to. 
Our faith is going to be tested by what we do with it. You're going to cross the Jordan to go and into the land and possess it. The Lord your God is giving it to you to possess. You might want to underline that. The land God had given them to possess, he commanded them to go possess. He's not, he's not making it an option for them. He says, look, this is the land I gave you. Go in and possess it. This is my plan for your life. This is what I want you to do. This is truly a thus says the Lord moment. This is what I promised Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. You've gotten to this place. It's time to go do it. It's no longer time to talk about it. And I want to take you back about 40 years. If you remember, as they got to the border of Kadesh Barnea the first time, they took a poll, didn't they? They actually took a vote. They sent 12 spies, and 10 came back and cast their vote for, Ah! We can't go in. You can't believe the size of the giants in the land. And two guys, believing still, thus says the Lord, went and they saw what thus says the Lord should enable you to see. These will be like grasshoppers to us. Let's just go in and take it. They got to that place and they would not do what God told them to do. Faith spoke. They would not put to work their faith. And so what happened? Forty years of wandering in the wilderness. So long that everyone who voted with the ten died. Now, I don't mean to scare you, but God doesn't always suffer long with people who won't step out in faith. He'll give it to another group. He'll give it to another person. He'll pass it along to someone else. He'll give the opportunity into the hands of the person that will take the step of faith instead of talk about the step of faith. And to the Reubenites and the Gadites and the half-tribe of Manasseh, Joshua spoke, saying, So remember, there are two and a half tribes that are going to stay on the other side of the Jordan. Reuben, Gad, and half of the tribe of Manasseh. Remember the word which Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you. Again, notice how he's speaking these things, saying, The Lord your God is giving you rest and is giving you this land. In other words, God's in it. God said it. God commanded it. God's saying, let's go do it. It's yours. And so you have, in essence, a vast majority of Israel is going to cross over. Two and a half tribes are going to stay in a land that was good for grazing cattle. That's what the Bible tells us about the land that is going to be inhabited by Reuben and Gad and half of the tribe of Manasseh. Your wives, your little ones, your livestock shall remain in the land which Moses gave you on this side of the Jordan. So you guys can just stay over here. You're more concerned about your cows than you are about the plans that God has. God's not going to fight you. Church, 
God is not going to force you to go in and receive what he has for you. He's going to give you opportunity. Notice what I just said. He is not going to force you to be blessed and to take what is yours in him. He is going to give you opportunity to step out in faith and seize what God has laid before you. If you are unwilling to take the opportunity and take the risk and go into battle, if you will not fight for what God has given you, then you will not receive what God has given you. You can stay with your cows. You can just stay over there on the other side of the Jordan, metaphorically. Doesn't mean that God hates you. God doesn't mean that God's completely abandoned you, but he has a perfect plan for your life, and you're basically saying, no, I'm going to take option B, thank you. I know this is what you want me to do, but I'm really not going to do that because I got lots of cows. I have plenty of other things to occupy my time here, so rather than do what you've asked me to do, Lord, I'm going to stay right here where I'm comfortable. Beware of being too comfortable. And I don't mean that you can't have a wonderful life. I mean that when your comfort stops you from taking steps of faith, you're in a dangerous place. When we stop taking steps of faith, we stop growing. And when we stop growing, we stop going. Do you understand what I'm saying? It is faith that pushes us forward. It is faith that causes us to step out. It is faith that will always motivate the body of Christ without faith. Hebrews 11.6 says it is impossible, amen, to please God. So you can't be a person of faith and you really specifically can't be a leader in the church if you do not possess and use faith. Faith is an essential. It's not an option. It's an essential to those of us specifically who are in leadership. But you shall pass before your brethren armed, all your mighty men of valor, and help them. Until the Lord has given your brethren rest. In other words, you stay here at ease. You help load the armor onto your brothers. You make sure they're ready for battle. And you can just stay here and you know watch after the cows. Watch after the families. Not a bad thing to do. You can do that. As he gave you. And they also have taken possession of the land which the Lord your God is giving them. It's like they're going to go over and you're going to stay here. You're going to stay in the permissive will of God and they're going to go in the perfect will of God. God commanded all of the children, but part of the children took a pole. And they said, well, we'd rather paint the church this color. Or we would rather have the lights look like this. I'm not poking fun at anybody. I'm simply saying I can tell you that when you make any decision in the body of Christ, there will be detractors. There will be people that will have the opposite opinion. Worse than that, they'll have 10 opinions of their own and they won't like their own opinions. Uh, After a couple of days of dwelling on their opinions, they're going to change their opinions into another opinion. God wants us to not be stymied by taking opinions all the time, taking polls all the time. God has given us a task to do. He's given us the gifts to get it done. 
And sometimes you just need to old-fashioned get going. And then you shall return to the land of your possession. And check this out. Enjoy it. God wants us to enjoy what he has given us. But if you won't step out in faith, having all of the stuff God has not given you will not bring you the joy of having the stuff that God has given you. You understand what I just said? In other words, what God actually wants for you is the best thing for you. That's his plan. And when he has a plan, it's always a good plan. Your plan might be an okay plan, but his plan is a perfect plan for you. And if you will take his plan and take his steps and do it his way, then you will be able to enjoy what it is that he's given you. If you simply take out on your own, then it may not be a joyful experience. You might even have more. You you might be better off. You may have circumstantially even better things, but when you're in the center of God's will, you can be in a dire situation and still be absolutely enjoyed in, in the things, or in, filled with joy in the things that God's called you to do. Life is not dependent on circumstance for the body of Christ. Life is dependent on being in the perfect will of God. Perfect life for the believer is walking in the perfect will of God. And there's no escaping that. It's not different for me than it is for you. God's perfect will for you is God's perfect will for you. It's what He wants, it's what He would do. If you handed Him literal control of your life, imagine yourself for a moment as, as, as a robot, and God's got the controls. You would do exactly what he wants you to do. You would be where he wants you to be. You would have what he wants you to have. You would be exactly in the center of God's perfect will. But because God wants to also have a love relationship, he did not make you a robot. He's given you control over your own destiny in that sense your own ability to walk in God's will and God's ways. Why? Because the result of volition is you love him. I do what I do because I love God. Because God loves me. I do not do what I do because I'm going to get something from God or because I don't want God to do something to me. I do it because I love him and so following God's will becomes completely 100% volitional in its perfect sense. It's the same reason that in married life, you know, I, I don't walk into the house and nor does Connie walk up to me and go, well, here's your list of stuff to do. Get after it. That happens. You, you don't have much of a love relationship, right? The reason that you go into the kitchen and do the dishes in the sink is because you love the other person. You want to bless them. You do not want them to have to do it. You would rather do it yourself. It's not because you have to. It's because you want to. Amen? Because if you do it out of obligation, what happens? You turn bitter, right? You start to hate the fact that you're the one that's doing dishes. When you do it out of love, you consider it a privilege. 
It is a privilege to both lead and follow the Lord and to walk in his ways. That is the beginning of understanding what God has for us when we talk about gleaning the things that the Lord would have us to enjoy, which Moses, the end of verse 15, the Lord's servant gave you on this side of the Jordan towards the sunrise. And so some principles for us tonight. My dear friend, fellow pastor, he's our CFO, uh, many, many, many years ago, came up with a, an axiom, when it's all said and done, more is said than done. It's very true, especially in the church. A lot of people have ideas, they have thoughts, they have wants, desires, opinions, things that they think should be and not be, things that should be done and not done, places we should go and not go, things that should be priority one and things that should be priority ten. But here's the strange thing. Very often you can tell when someone has faith. Because when someone has faith, they actually endeavor to accomplish some of those things. Someone without faith just simply expresses their opinion. They just tell you what you should do. They tell you how you should do it. You'll not find them volunteering their time to actually accomplish that task. They'll tell you why you should do it the way it should be done. When it's all said and done, very often more is said than done. That's a bad thing to have happen in the body of Christ because we are all supposed to be doers of the word, not just hearers only. Amen? Because if you're just a hearer, you're deceiving yourself. And so in that sense, Joshua, just like Moses, and you can see this, you can read it for yourself in Deuteronomy chapter 1, interesting, as this instruction is given. So at that time, the only instruction that the children of Israel would have had maybe are the first five books, but Deuteronomy really kind of starts this whole discourse on the law and what was expected of them. The very first thing that is said in chapter one is here's what I want you to do. I want you to make captains of thousands and captains of hundreds and captains of tens and officers for your tribes and all these things. He does establish leadership. He says, look, it's necessary that you have some leadership. It's a good thing. But notice what Joshua does not do here. He doesn't wander around and go, so what do you think? And what do you think? And how do you think we should across the river? You know, should we, you don't see Joshua going, does anyone here know how to build a boat? Oh, God had told him to just simply cross it, that he would take care of it. Now, what's the backdrop for that as far as the, the Jewish people are concerned? God had already opened up the Red Sea. God had already done a much greater aquatic miracle, okay? Because <laughs> the Red Sea is a whole lot. There's parts, look, I don't want to blow anybody you know, out of the water, but you know, we think of the River Jordan in our minds, and you think of this beautiful, free-flowing you know, river, and you know, it's just probably like the Mississippi or something. And you get there's spots where the River Jordan and the Southern River, the Southern Jordan Valley. I mean, if you're a really good spitter, you could probably make it all the way across. I mean, it's literally like 30 or 40 feet wide in spots. It's not very wide, but during flood season, it can be a mile wide. 
when it's pouring across the flatter areas of the valley floor and there's been rains in the Golan and the water has risen up out of the riverbed. So it was one of those things that even at its flood stage, it was probably only going to be a couple of feet deep. Where the channel was, it's probably 10 feet deep in most places. It wasn't a huge deal, but it's a huge deal when you're trying to take in excess of 40 thousand people across to go fight a battle because if you know anything about bronze age armor and weapons they're not exactly light you sling in a sword and you got you know some armor plating for maybe your breastplate and you hop in the water it's like see you bud <laughs> but joshua didn't ask him you know how are we going to do this in that sense, committees are not always a good thing. Now, I want to be very careful here. I want to postulate this within the context that Proverbs 11, verse 14 says, in the multitude of counsel, there is safety or wisdom. So there is wisdom in getting counsel. But that time is as you're praying. That time is before the time of battle. That time is in the time of preparation. That time is not in the time that you're stepping across the river. It's like, wait, 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 wait. You know, I'm not quite up to this. I think we need to take another poll. I think we need to have another committee. We need to gather a whole bunch more people together. I mean, I'm just not feeling it now, bro. It's like I'm kind of looking at the river. I mean, it seemed like a good plan yesterday. You have to do the praying beforehand. You have to do the praying in the middle, and you do the praying afterwards. You do the planning after you've prayed. You understand what I'm saying? Planning comes after praying. And once you have planned, then the Bible says that you let God ordain your steps. There's a place for planning. There's a place for praying. The place for praying is before, during, and after. The place for planning is after you have prayed. And once you have prayed and once you have planned, there's only one thing left for you to do. Do what God told you to do. Step out in faith. Use that faith that you must have or it's impossible to please God and actually put one foot in front of the other. Too many Christians get stuck on the other side of the River Jordan. They get to the Jordan, and it is at flood stage. And to them, it looks like it's 20 feet deep for a mile. And all God's saying, Jeff, I just need you to put one foot in the water. It's going to be okay. I just need you to trust me on this. You've prayed. You've sought counsel. I don't need you to go get another committee. Here's what happens very often, especially in counseling people in difficult situations in their life. They'll come in, sit down, we'll walk through the Bible. Here's what it says about your situation. We'll pray. We will have prayed for a month, two months. They'll get down to actually doing what it is that we've talked about. And they'll go, well, I'm going to go see another pastor. And sometimes, honestly, I want to say, well, what'd you come see me for? You know, I think you kind of wasted my time, to be honest. Give you a little secret, you come in to see any of the pastors, and we give you some homework to do, 
and you come back and you tell us you haven't done that homework, we're going to send you home until you do it. Because if you won't take the steps or someone you know will not take the first steps, there's no reason to give you the second one. When God has spoken, when he takes his word and makes it alive to you, you're supposed to take steps of faith, not debate it further. Not wait until you find somebody to agree with you. Can I just tell you that no matter what your issue is on earth, you can always find somebody to agree with you. And here's what we do as humankind, and anyone who's done a fair amount of counseling will tell you this. Typically what happens is when someone tells you no, you don't like what they say, so they will go find someone who will tell them yes. You see this very early on in your children, amen? What did your father say? Well, he said no. So who are they talking to? Mom, hoping she'll say yes, or vice versa, right? It's part of our sin nature. It's part of our carnality of our humanness. And that transfers over sometimes into church and to leadership within the church. It's not about committees. It's about listening to the voice of the Lord and doing what he says. Can be a wonderful thing. You know, we did kind of a poll. We actually did the outside of the building. We we gave a bunch of color schemes and just kind of wanted to see what people were thinking. And honestly, we actually went with the one that was most popular. It happened to be the one that I liked. So committees can be good. They can serve a purpose, especially for things that don't inherently matter. After all, I hope none of you come to the church because of the color of the walls. I hope none of you are here because you like, oh man, they have lights. Or my favorite thing, I actually have had people, honest truth, and, I, and not that I ever deceive you, but this is one of those things, it's like, it's almost hard to believe. I've had people ask, do you have pews? And here's what they often follow it with. Well, you know, I just don't think the Lord likes chairs. Really? The Lord doesn't like chairs. Like he can't receive praise and worship and you can't hear the word if you're sitting in a chair, but if you're in a pew, you can. Now, I happen to like pews. Let me tell you why. Because they allow you to self-regulate the space between you. So those of you that are, you know, kind of like, like to socially distance yourself, you can do that. Uh, if you ladies have a purse, it can actually be sitting next to you. Uh, it allows for us to have our Bibles not on the floor. I'm just an old school guy. I don't like to see Bibles on the floor. Sorry. So if your Bible's on the floor right now, pick it up. <laughs> no, we all have opinions, right? I dropped my Bible one time into a, when I was, I think I was about 14. And I really just started to walk with the Lord. And I dropped my Bible into a rain gutter in a rainstorm. I was horrified. That thing ended up this fat. It like sucked up all the, I had to, I had to get, I honestly, it was, I couldn't use it anymore. But you know what? The word that was in that Bible was still just as good, all swollen up and, and you know, bloated like that from being, you know, completely soaked with water. So be careful that you're not worshiping the wrong thing. Be careful that you're still worshiping the Lord. That you're here because you love Jesus. 
that this is, this is a place you come to connect with him. Don't come simply because you've had a committee and maybe it's a committee of one and you agree with yourself. Sometimes committees are good and sometimes they're not. Our default setting should always be, thus says the Lord. And here's what I mean by that. In this case, it was literal. God had said, this is the land I am giving you. There was a voice given to Joshua. It had, been, had begun actually with Abraham, passed down through the patriarchs. It comes to Joshua. Joshua is spoken to. It's like, here's what I want you to do. Go in and possess it. But for us, we have another way for that to happen. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of the Lord. Amen? Romans 10, 17. So the easiest way for you to know what the Lord wants you to do is to simply read your Bible. To actually pick it up and study it. One of the reasons that I encourage people to own a Bible, if there's not one study thing in your Bible, do make sure that it contains a topical index. Why? Because you can look up the word mercy, or you can look up the word grace, you can look up the word money, or you can look up the word cross. You can simply take that topical index and then go back and say, man, I really don't know what the Bible says on divorce. And you can actually go find the passages that contain the word divorce and actually read them. Drunkenness. You want to know what the Bible says about going to parties? It's real easy. It's don't. It's simple. It'll transform the way you think. Because when thus says the Lord precedes anything, so if the Bible says it, that's your instruction to do it, not debate it. Thus says the Lord is supposed to be the default setting of every believer. And so if God has already said it, that's his opinion on it. You don't need to question it. You don't need to question him. And you don't need to ask somebody else for a different opinion. God said it. I believe it. That settles it. That old axiom. Amen? If more Christians would do that, they would have so many less problems. It's like our problem is often that we don't like what the Bible actually already says about the thing that we're trying to get an answer to. So rather than believe the Lord, we go, ah, we're not crossing the River Jordan. You know, we're going to go around. We believe there's a way to get past the River Jordan. Well, in this case, that would have taken them into Assyrian territory to the north. It would have taken them directly into the teeth of the enemy. And so God said, don't go that way. It may seem good to you. You can see the mountains are up there. You probably know the, this river originates up there. You, you would be right in thinking there's headwaters and they'll be shallower and narrower. And it would be right for you to think that way. But I told you I want you to go across here. Thus says the Lord is our default setting. That promise of Proverbs 16, 9, man makes his plans, the Lord ordains your steps. So when God says yes, it's yes. When God says no, it's no. And when God speaks to any issue in your life through his word, that is not a suggestion to you, that is a command. 
So just do it. You'll be blessed in doing it. And you won't have to guess whether it's the Lord's will or not. He's already revealed it in his written word. Joshua and Caleb had been present when God delivered the nation from Egypt. They were there. Think about that one for a second. Isn't it weird that in our walks with the Lord, we watch God throughout time, deliver us time and time again from all kinds of things, and we get to something new, and we're like, well, I don't think he can do it this time. I don't think he can deliver me this time. It's just, no, not this one. We so easily forget the graciousness with which God has dealt with us as believers. You know, sometimes I ponder the fact that one day I'm going to take my last breath and go to heaven, and I'm like, God, you're too good. I don't deserve that. Somebody actually asked me the question last week, well, what do I need to do so so that I deserve heaven? I said, you will never deserve heaven. And they looked at me like, oh, no. I said, that's why it's a gift. You can't earn it. You can't deserve it. It's not of you. It's by grace. It's through faith. It's a gift from God. God's ways are ways of gifting. God just simply gifts us these beautiful things. The God that opened the Red Sea could also open the Jordan River. It was as simple as that to them. And the longer you walk with the Lord, the more you will know that truth. You just watch over and over and over and over again the faithfulness of a very wonderful God. And you go, yep, he did it again. Let me tell you, the preparation is still a good idea. Don't mistake that they did nothing, because that's not true either. Sometimes people take this to the point of abusing faith. And they don't seek the multitude of counselors. They don't plan. They don't prepare. They do nothing. That also is not a good thing. Praying is the first step of planning. Amen? If I want to know, and it doesn't matter what subject. It literally doesn't matter. If I want to know any subject matter about which I am not familiar, who do you want to go to? You want to go to an expert, amen? I would hope that if you have a medical problem, you would seek an expert in that field of medicine. That you don't go online and go, you know, what should I do about, you know, and you get somebody that says, well, you know, just eat a bunch of prickly pear cactus and you'll be fine. You know, it's just like, it's it's like crazy how we, we, we somehow think that if we just, search long enough, we can get an answer that's going to agree with what we already think about the situation that somehow is going to be good. No, you want to go to an expert. So in this case, if God knows everything, amen? God knows everything, doesn't he? He's omniscient. He's omnipotent. He's omnipresent. He knows everything. He's all-powerful, and he's everywhere. So if he is those three things then there's not a single thing that you can ask him that he's going to go, wow, Jeff, I just just don't know. I got no idea. You you really stumped me on that one. And God's sitting in heaven going, help! No, it's not going to happen. 
God has an answer. Our problem is, in our planning, we don't start with God. We start with the presupposition. That presupposition is based on what we already believe to be the case. We begin to act on that. And so our prayers become prayers of, Oh, Lord, help me. Why? Because we didn't pray first. We prayed after we got the train started. For those of you that like such things, the Orient Express, which uh, originated in Paris and would end up down in Constantinople at the time, uh, would make stops in, in both Budapest and Bucharest, so in Romania and in Hungary today, And as that train was traveling, you know, trains back then didn't have all the modern braking systems that we have right now. Well, they were running the train back from Constantinople into the station in Bucharest in Romania. And somebody that was sitting in the midst of the driver's seat fell asleep. That train hit the station going full speed. Was that planning? No, I'm pretty sure that they had a plan to not drive the train into the station at full speed. That was on the engineer that was at the controls, amen? Very often the same is true. We may know what the manual says, but we're asleep at the wheel. If you're asleep at the wheel, you can count on crashing. Not because God didn't give you great counsel and not because you didn't ask for it, but you were asleep. You weren't paying attention. You were out on your feet. Notice the encouragement here. You shall pass. You shall possess. And the Lord will give it to you. Those are directives from the Lord that must be combined with you staying awake and you staying on the plan. You see, they're not going to possess it. They're not going to enter in. None of those things happen if you fall asleep. Amen? If I fall asleep, you think I'm going to pass over anything? No, I might pass out. I might pass off of a viaduct or a bridge. There's a lot of things that might happen, but I'm not going to pass over the danger. I'm going to get consumed by the danger if I'm asleep. The same thing is going to happen if I'm not paying attention. I'm just kind of wandering through life. So that planning is a good idea because it gets you awake. It gets you in tune with what God wants. And you are then engaged in the process of understanding these affirmations are from the Lord. I need to be fully attentive to them. We as the church... As we both lead and follow, have to remember that God has given us standing orders for the church. These are the things that he wants. This is how we're supposed to act. We can't be asleep. We can't be not paying attention. We we have to be absolutely engaged. And if we are, then the praying and the planning will bring about a good result. But if you just pray and you don't plan, then your prayer ends up just kind of ethereal. It's up here in your head. Because prayer should result in planning. The planning should come to fruition in practice. Prayer, planning, practice. Those three things go together. 
You have to put them together in order for them to be the complete package. Don't leave any part of it out. But pray first. Pray during and pray after. Amen? If nothing else, a prayer of thanksgiving. So preparation is still a great idea. Planning is still a great idea. The Lord got them up in the morning, tells every family, grab your own food, you're going to need it. That's planning. But they're still following what the Lord had commanded, amen? Go in and possess. He didn't say, well, if you can't find enough food, let's not go. He said, get enough food because we're going. Do you understand the difference? little subtlety there. We are going, grab some food. Not well, if you find enough food, we'll go. One, what's the, what's the ingredient? It's faith, isn't it? Because maybe you didn't get enough food. You still going to go? Maybe there wasn't enough to go around. You still going to go? Are you still going to trust God? Or are you just going to go, well, you know, the plans didn't quite work out. Sometimes you just need to move on. You got to keep going. In this passage, we see something that I want to just simply address. And that's the danger of defaulting to the old ways. So they're still in, technically in the wilderness. Anybody remember how the Lord was feeding them in the wilderness? What was falling from the sky and on the ground every morning? Manna. Means what is it? They had no idea. They just knew who sent it. It was God. I can't wait to find out what's in that jar that's inside of the Ark of the Covenant. I want to know what manna is. Personally, it could be Twinkies. It's possible. Because they last forever. They have no shelf life. I mean, you can, like, you can keep them for like 100 years, and they're still, the filling is still moist, okay? I have no But what do you think would be their problem? Well, we can just stay here and God will just keep giving us manna. We've always done it this way. We've done it, hear me out, we've done it this way for 40 years and it's always worked. God was about to change the paradigm, wasn't he? Because you know what happens as soon as they go? The manna ends. Things are going to get different. Here's what happens to the people who constantly default to, we have always done it this way. They die in the wilderness. The church dies with them, by the way. There is an absolute problem that exists in the church, especially as the church gets older. And that is the tendency to just watch it become a bunch of old gray heads that sit around and talk about what the temple used to look like. And I say that as someone who's got an old gray head who sometimes thinks about what the temple used to look like. I'm old enough to remember. I'm old enough to think back. I can look at where the world is today and I can actually myself bemoan the past. It's like I wish it was simpler. I wish I was born during the time of Little House on the Prairie. Well, I wasn't. 
I have a dear pastor friend, I'm going to leave his name out, probably almost all of you in this room have heard him at some point in time, but I was involved in the construction of their church as well, and he pleaded with the church board for a number of years. The church had been growing, the church was in an industrial building, they were at three services about to go to four, it was killing the pastor, and he pleaded with the board. But there was one board member who just withstood and just like, I've been in business my whole life and I've watched this stuff and there is no way in the world that God's going to give us a new church and we can't do this and can't do that. He became a glorified or sanctified obstructionist to what the Lord wanted to do. And he actually said, because I have been giving to this church, and he named how many years, and he named how much money he had given to the church. He said, you will build this church over my dead body. Anybody want to guess what happened? Hasta la vista, baby. He died. About four months later, he had a massive heart attack and was gone. That church got built. That church was ten times the size of the original church. And that one filled up and then went to two services and then three services. And today it's one of the largest churches in America. You got to be careful because sometimes you can just simply rely on yesterday's manna. This is what worked in the past. This is where we are. And I've shared these things with you before, but I think it bears repeating You ask me, do I want you with your Bible on your phone right now? No. Let me be really clear. No. I would prefer that you have an actual Bible in your lap. Why? Because it becomes part of you. It gets tear stains on it. It has highlights in it. It becomes part of you. I have almost every Bible that I have had, and I need to get new ones periodically because I write in them so much that I get passages I kind of sort of mess up because I write too much in them. Some of them not so much, but I would rather. But you know what? I would never, ever in this day and age tell somebody they can't bring an iPad into the sanctuary with a Bible on it or a cell phone with a Bible on it. I wouldn't do I watched, I was in the room when Pastor Chuck chastised someone publicly for having their phone out with a Bible on it. Young man, put that away. We don't allow that here. Now, he was old and hated cell phones because he still associated cell phones with the devil, basically. I'm not saying cell phones are a great thing. I'm saying we live in a day and age it's getting harder and harder to actually buy a book, isn't it? I happen to have a fairly substantial library of actual book books. But I also have a very substantial library of electronic books. And those electronic books, I can take anywhere my iPad goes. My laptop's there. My library's there. That's really hard to do with the bookcase. So there are some benefits to some of those things. Don't become a sanctified obstructionist because the world is changing. And when the church doesn't change with it, and I'm not saying carnality, I'm saying we take opportunity 
the world we live in is not the world I grew up in. And if I try and make it like the 1950s and 60s right now, we're going to be in trouble. Amen? So I've had to learn this lesson a little bit the hard way. I'm going to encourage you. The Lord is quite all right with us adjusting things periodically because of the time that we're in. This is a new day for the children of Israel. They had wandered in the wilderness and things were very simple for them in the wilderness. They are about to have an absolute transformation of life. They're going into war. And their whole existence is going to be war for several centuries, actually. It's going to be hard for a long time. There's going to be battle after battle after battle. So waiting around for the manna to fall would have been deadly. Staying where God hadn't called them would have been deadly. There comes a time when change, if it is not undertaken, causes the church to die. Wisdom and zeal need each other. Youth and age need each other. It's not one thing for the other thing. But if we default to tradition, if it has to look a certain way, and because we have waited for it to look a certain way and it doesn't, we then reject the truth of what God's word says, then we have defaulted to tradition. And it has always been death to the church. Every single time the church gets stuck, it creates the exact same problem. The church ends up in the grave. You know, let's, let's, let's be honest. For those of us that are in the room right now, there's some place between your late 50s and your mid-70s, we are the generation that invented rock and roll, okay? Just saying. Okay, we invented it. But look at us now. We, we try and do any of the stuff we did when we were that age, we're all going to break a hip, okay? It's not going to be good. So the bottom line is we're not in that generation. So we might appreciate certain things a little differently than someone else. When I grew up, I, I had a pastor that was a missionary in the Congo. Knew probably 200 hymns by heart and always wanted to sing everything a cappella. The church board got after him. Well, you have to have a pianist. You have to have an organist. Dr. Nodsworthy, we, you know, we got to have an organist. And then after a while, the organist got, we have to have a guitarist. And then came the godlessness of drums. And oh, the demonic electric guitar. You, you understand what I'm saying? So there was a time when it was just like, well, let's just sing a cappella to the Lord. And then it's like, well, we got to have a piano. And then let's get an organ. And then guitars and drums and basses and full bands and choirs and all those kind of things. There's a time and a purpose and a season for everything. But don't get too attached to those traditions because God just might shake up your apple tree. He, he, he might change things up on you. You might end up spanning several different generations as I have. You might have a preference, 
But here's what happens. If we keep doing things the way some of us who are a little bit older want, who do we leave behind? Who do we leave behind? We not only leave the Lord behind, but we leave the next generation behind. We, we leave the ones that are coming beyond. Look, this is not supposed to be a social club for old people who already know Jesus. Amen? This is supposed to be a hospital for the broken, and it's supposed to be a school for the young. We're supposed to be reaching the lost. We're supposed to be seeking them who are going to be saved. We're supposed to be preaching the gospel. And sometimes it's going to look different. And leaders are going to come and go, but the mission remains the same. It may look different how we accomplish it. But good leaders know when it's time to change. This was a time of change. And because of that, great faith, you you know, I mean, we don't have to do Elvis hymns. We don't have to do Maranatha music. We don't have to do Keith Green, you know, all these these people that were like at the cutting edge. I go back to that era. Connie and I actually have someplace stuffed away the original Maranatha albums, actual vinyl. Anybody got a record player left? By the way, they're, they're now considered very cool, so if you have one. So, you know, we can sit there, oh, man, we don't do that anymore. As the deer panteth for the water so much. You know what I'm saying. You got all the songs stuck in your head. You got how you did communion in your head. You have all these things in your head. That's where it is. It's just in your head. It means something to us, and it's not invaluable. But it's also not the end of the journey. So be careful. Because you can get stuck. And if you get stuck... You might just die right there being stuck. The tribes were going to struggle with this. Had a lot of borderline believers that just kind of stayed outside of the promised land because they liked it the way they had it. Didn't work out well. You may like it the way you had it. I'm not even saying that that's inherently wrong. The Bible doesn't say so. But it can definitely become an idol. To where if it doesn't look like you want it to look, can't be of God. Nothing that they're about to experience looked the way it looked when they were in the wilderness. Not one aspect of life. They're about to move into fortified cities. They're about to become people of war. They're going to go from farmers and wanderers to warriors. And they needed the change to be able to do what God had called them to do. And it was great faith in the Lord that was going to get them there. Let's wrap this up tonight. And so the answer Joshua saying, check this out. All, here's a, here's a great leader having great impact on a great group of people. And they answered Joshua saying, all that you commanded us, we will do. And wherever you send us, we will go. And just as we heeded Moses in all things. Now, here's the crazy thing. Did they do everything Moses asked them to do? Not on your life. That's actually not true. So they're making a little bit of a braggadocious statement here, like they were spiritual giants. But just maybe this is the first step in the right direction. Never dismiss people who have failed in the past doing the right thing today. 
Never dismiss people who have failed in the past doing the right thing today. That's called repentance. That's called grace. That's called mercy. That's called forgiveness. These things that are the core of who Jesus is. We have to be quick to recognize that most of us have not always done what the Lord's asked us to do. Be kind to other people who also have not always done what the Lord has asked them to do. Be gentle with them. Just as we heeded Moses in all things, so we will heed you. Only the Lord, your God, be with you, as he was with Moses. And whoever rebels against your command and does not heed your words in all that you command him, he should be put to death and only be strong and of good courage. You know, I can tell you something about leadership in the church. It's not easy. And encouragement is needed. Sometimes it's a, it's a lonely thing being in pastoral leadership because ultimately it boils down to just you and God sometimes. Sometimes there's a consensus opinion and it seems like everybody's for you. It's just like, yeah, let's go. But there are times when it just has to be, thus says the Lord. This is what God said. This is what we're doing. And notice the response to that in this passage. We will do it. That is such an encouragement to leadership. Because to the extent that we're in it together, we do it together, we agree together, let's go do this thing. It takes one of the tools that I think the enemy has most greatly used, actually in this last couple of years, and that is division out of his hands. It takes division out of the hands of the enemy. And instead of us fighting each other, we become an army together. Instead of us questioning every decision, we say, man, it must be really difficult to be in that place. Let's just pray and support. Let's be an encouragement. And many of you are, and I want to honor that. I've had some really kind emails in the last couple of weeks that are just, you know, they Honestly, they sometimes just make me cry. It's like, Lord, I had no idea that people thought that way. Be an encouragement. Because as we go into a time of transition in this church, not only am I going to need it, Pastor Chet's going to need it. Matter of fact, he's going to need it more than me. Because I'm old and sometimes I don't even remember what I had for breakfast. So you could disrespect me and cause me to have problems, and I'll probably look at you the following day and go, how are you doing? Just because I don't remember a lot of things sometimes. Good leaders need encouragement. They don't need discouragement. We get enough of that from the enemy. So be an encourager to leadership. God had called Moses and Joshua to serve together. And in essence, to disobey, to disobey the servant was to disobey the master. So the way it went was this. When you disobeyed Joshua, you disobeyed Moses. And when you disobeyed Moses, you disobeyed God. That's how leadership, that's the flow of leadership in the church. I may not make every decision the way you like it made. But here's your absolute get-out-of-jail-free card. One day I'm going to stand before God for every one of those decisions. So whether you like them or don't like them or agree with them or don't agree with them, one thing that you can do is just say, oh, 
Lord, be merciful to poor Pastor Jeff. Because one day I'm going to stand. If you think it's a bad decision, and it is a bad decision, I'm going to have to answer to God for it. But if it's a good decision, and we have to have conflict, or we have to have division, or we have to split up the body of Christ, or divide the body over opinions, then you're going to stand before God for the division. That is equally dangerous. What's, what's the common denominator there? It's grace, isn't it? As you are gracious to me and I am gracious to you, and I'm just using me as an example, it could be anyone. It could be anyone that's in leadership in the church, anyone that's in leadership in your little sphere of people. When you are gracious to one another, why do you think Jesus said, be merciful, for he who desires mercy must himself first be merciful? Forgive as I have forgiven you. Why are those things always said that way by Jesus? Well, because they're his heart. And when we do that, then we receive what God wants for us and we give what God wants for other people to receive. But if we don't, then we start to have this combative atmosphere to where we're against each other. And it's no longer what we stand for, but rather what we're against. And what we're against should never be the central truth of the church. It should be what we're for. And we should be for each other and for the Lord. And so in that sense, every last one of us needs that encouragement. I do. Everyone that I have ever known in leadership in the church is needed. And that obedience then becomes a matter of life or death often. It may be the life or death of a ministry. It might be the life or death literally of a person. It's a serious thing to fall in the hands of a righteous God. And so I don't want anybody to do that, and I don't want to do it myself. So my answer to that is being gracious and loving and kind and tender and gentle, recognizing that we all have our, we, we all got our issues, Amen. There's not not a person in this room, and I don't care what you say about it, to be honest with you. You have issues. You may hide them really well, and some of us may have fewer issues than other people, but I haven't met a person yet, not one, ever, in my time in ministry. Never have I met a single person that doesn't have issues. Not one. And that includes Pastor Chuck and Pastor Steve. That includes all of my pastor friends. And matter of fact, I could pull every one of them up here one at a time, and we would probably sit around for a couple of days and tell you about our issues. <laughs> Things that, she's like, man, I don't get that one. So be kind. Be gentle. Be understanding. Be loving. Be gracious. And encourage people. Not only do leaders need it, but you need it. Pray for that person. If you disagree with something, pray. Matter of fact, pray blessing. Pray kindness. Do what Scripture says. In doing so, you're going to heap coals on that person's head. When you do good to those who spitefully use you, it freaks them out. It really does. It's like, I don't know what to do with that. Try it sometime. Corey Tenboom said, prayer in that sense 
is going to be one of two things in your life. It will either be your steering wheel or it will be your spare tire. What a great truth. Prayer is either going to be the thing that guides you or it's going to be the thing you're looking for when your tire blows out. When your car's off the road in a ditch. So pray first. Encourage often. Be part of the solution, not part of the problem. Because truly, God wants to be the theme in all of this. That's how they could be strong and be of good courage because God never fails to provide the strength to give us the courage if we'll actually walk in him. If we're going to conquer the enemy, if we're going to claim the territory that God has for us, then we have to have spiritual strength to get it done. So let's do that. Amen? And let's pray for each other. Let's ask the Lord to do great and mighty things. Let's not get stuck in the past. Let's not be looking for manna when God's taken us to a place to where there's fertile fields. Let's, let's not be resting on our laurels when there's a new battle to fight because there's new ground to claim because there's new places that God wants to take us. These are all parts of Leadership 101. And they're good things. Amen? Would you stand and we'll close. Father, thank you. Thank you, Lord, for what you've already done in each of our lives. And we pray tonight, perhaps there's someone here or maybe watching online that doesn't know you. They haven't begun that journey of faith. And Lord, would you by your spirit convict and convince of the truth of the gospel, who you are and what you have done, that you died, Lord, in our place on that cross. And the life that you lived was perfect when we weren't. Lord, that if we would simply invite you into our lives, that we can have salvation and eternity in heaven. And so, Lord, we just invite you to simplify things for us. Help us to be people of prayer and people who will encourage readily, especially those in leadership around us. God, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your word. We're reminded, Lord, of your words through the gospel author Luke as the Pharisees were hunting him down. They were trying to trap him. He knew their thoughts. And he actually said to them that a kingdom divided against itself is brought to ruin, to desolation, and a house divided cannot stand. It falls. And so, Lord, help us to be united in that call, united in that purpose. Lord, thank you for the leaders that you placed in our lives. Lord, I thank you for the men in my life that have pushed me along and challenged me, molded me, and shaped me. Lord, use us for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Thanks for listening, and we hope you were encouraged by today's message. If you have any questions or just want to check us out, make sure to visit us at ccsouthbay.org. God bless you guys, and we'll see you next week.